This is Kim Wilson, and you are listening to Talking Blues. I know you're on the West Coast. Are you affected by all the fire and all that? Not at this point, no. Uh, but they say we're only in the middle of the fire season, and, uh, you know, fire can happen at any given moment. You know, it's, uh, it's a pretty scary thing. I'm not really close to things that, I, I'm close to things that could burn, but I, I'm not close to something that could be possibly catastrophic. So I'm very, uh, I'm very close to the highway. I'm very right. close to fire department access and, uh, I feel semi-secure. This house was built in 1976, and it hasn't burned yet. So, <laughs> have you come close to this? Like, I know that it seems like it's a regular thing in California. Like, has has, has fire been an issue? Ever? Of course, fire's been an issue for the whole time. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, my dad moved us out here in 1960 from Detroit. Um, he was uh, a draftsman at General Motors and they moved him out to Santa Barbara. And we had a couple real big fires. But the thing is, now they become so much more frequent, so much more intense, and the season is a lot longer. And that makes it uh, very scary for a lot of people. I mean, the people in Oregon also, they just, they got devastated by, uh, you know, it, it's climate change, of course. And yeah, I, I have no idea why the world is doing so little about that. But, uh, you know, that's just the way it is right now. I know. It's crazy times. Very crazy. So you talked about your, your dad. Your dad and your parents were singers. Is that correct? My dad was a singer. My dad was a singer on the, uh, actually on the radio, sang with Danny Thomas. Wow. <laughs> that's his claim to fame. <laughs> but he was... Uh, you know, a, a very creative guy. I mean, um, uh, my mother was a very uh, tolerant and supportive of my creativity, uh, but my dad was really the creative force in my family. And he, you know, he was a he was an artist. I became a fine artist. He was a musician. I've been playing music since I was, geez, I don't know, ten years old <laughs> or or younger. Right. You know, and I started and I started out playing trombone and guitar when I was very young. But uh, so my dad was very encouraging as far as uh, he wanted me to be a, a cartoonist. Really? Uh, yeah. And I, I was I was pretty good. I won awards at fine art. I had scholarships to go to school for fine art. And uh, then I started playing in bands and that was it. <laughs> so when you were going, so you went to university, I understand, and you quit university to become a, a musician. I did. What, yeah. Was it in fine arts that you were in? You went to school. I, I, I went to. I had well, it was fine arts, but I, the thing is, I had scholarships to go to uh, Sonoma State College, and uh, for fine art and football. Really? <laughs> yeah. And what a combination, huh? So, so uh, I turned down that scholarship when I started playing in bands, and I went to Santa Barbara City College for a little over a semester, and then uh, 
I wanted to play music and surf, and that was it. Wow. Okay, so how did music come into your life, other than the fact that your parents sang? Well, I was always kind of an air guitarist, <laughs> even when I was very little. And uh, I was shy, but I had a voice, but I was very shy. When I got to California, I finally had my own room. And I had a little transistor radio, and I started listening to Casey Kasem. And then all of a sudden, I discovered XERB. And uh, Wolfman Jack was one of the DJs. Right. You know, they were down in Tijuana, so they, they didn't have any wattage restrictions. And you could probably hear them in Alaska, you know. But uh, I started hearing all this incredible stuff. And I listened to XERB all the way up until the end of 1968 when I started playing music. So that was about eight years. And then after I started playing music, uh, there was a great uh, jazz station in L.A. called KBCA. I used to listen to that also. But uh, it, it was amazing listening to the stuff they played on XCRB. It was nothing. It was not like pop radio. Right. You know, and, and then, of course, at the same time, FM radio was just starting to happen. And uh, you, would be, you were able to hear a lot of great, great music, very diverse, you know, not the typical pop stuff. Although the pop stuff back then was night and day better than it is now, of course. Yeah. There were real musicians actually playing it, and it was a, a fantastic, uh, you know, I mean, you could hear any everybody from the Flying Nun to Charlie Rich on pop radio. And, 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 and you could hear actually... Uh, Charlie Rich and Slim Harpo doing uh, Mohair Sam during the same period. Right. It was crazy. So, uh, uh, you know, it's a great, great, great time to grow up uh, the 60s. And it's a great, great time to be inspired by all these great musicians that were playing. And when I was a, a junior in high school, uh, I started going to see all these shows with my buddies who were big blues freaks, you know? Right. And uh, we would go down to LA from, from Goleta and we'd go to the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach. We'd go to the Ash Grove and we would see incredible stuff. I mean, absolutely incredible. Everybody was still alive. I remember going to see uh, Muddy Waters, George Harmonica Smith, Paul Butterfield, uh, I remember seeing at Robertson Gym in um, at UCSB. I remember seeing BB and Freddie King on the same show. Well, that was pretty intense. <laughs> I can imagine. And, you know, and I was just just starting to play at that point. And uh, this one kid was playing harmonica in the hallway all the time. I didn't never do that, but uh, I started going out to his shows, and he had this pretty cool little band. Uh, There's a place called Isla Vista up there uh, by UCSB. It's a college, little college town. And we used to surf over there, but uh, it, it was kind of a free-for-all. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of drugs and, uh, you know, I mean, drugs back then weren't like they are now either. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, you could go all over the place and see people playing in people's houses, see people playing in these little clubs out there. Uh, in the meantime, you know, I'm going to these places and watching Albert Collins and and uh, people like uh, Big Joe Turner 
so many somebody. I remember Big Joe Turner was on a show with uh, Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. That was an incredible thing. But uh, uh, and I gradually, I, you know, I, I looked at this guy, and I said, you know, the guy that was playing in the hallways. I said, I said you know, I could do that. So I I started playing, and uh, so what made you think month, you could do that? I don't know. I just had some kind of confidence that deep inside me, and I said I can do that. So I did it, and <laughs> in a month I was in a band, and in uh, in in a year I was playing with people like Eddie Taylor and Furry Lewis and Johnny Shines and all these unbelievable people uh, in one year. So, like, I, I would presume that you you learned listening to records. I did. Like, were you totally obsessed about learning the harmonica? Well, I, I guess you could say that. I mean, I, I was, yeah, I, I was obsessed. I mean, I was trying to learn solos off of records. Plus, I was hearing all these great guys. And then, as I was learning, I was on stage with these unbelievable masters, you know? Right. <laughs> I mean, I'd been playing for three months. And... People thought I'd been playing for a long, a lot longer. And then, uh, you know, I remember this guy. I'm not going to mention his name. He was, he just passed away, actually. But he was a, uh, he, he had a, a radio show at UCSB. And uh, he had a great radio show. And he, he was an incredible musicologist, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so... He had heard me play. He'd made tapes for me to listen to, reel-to-reel -reel tapes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he gave me some really cool stuff. And he said, well, Eddie Taylor is playing at this place called the uh, Bluebird Cafe. And uh, you want to play harmonica behind him? I went, of course. I was scared shitless, but yeah. <laughs> so I got there, and Eddie was... Uh, very, very soft-spoken guy. This is the first time I met Eddie. I'm not sure if I played with anybody, you know, of, of that kind of stature before that. But uh, so I get up there with Eddie, and he starts calling off songs, thinking I probably don't know him, but I knew every single one of them. And uh, we became fast friends, and I knew Eddie for the rest of his life. You know, crazy things like that happened to me. You know, I mean, I, there was a guy named John Phillips, not not the mamas and papas John Phillips, but right. this guy was a harmonica player and a uh, and an abalone diver. Hmm. And uh, he was a little older than me, quite a bit older. And uh, he had been to many, many, many blues shows. He was a blues freak. He's the guy that turned me on to so many records and he got me on so many stages. Uh, I, I really owe a lot to him. So George Smith was a guy that I had, you know, my two harmonica players when I was a kid, my first one was James Cotton. Right. The second one was George Smith. And I had uh, that James Cotton record on Verve. Mm -hmm. that, that first record on Verve was like the Bible for me and, and the Thunderbirds from... And my whole musical kind of Bible, you know. Right. And then there was this thing called A Tribute to the Little Walter on World Pacific by uh, George Harmonica Smith, and that blew my mind. Plus, George Harmonica Smith, I'd seen him play a couple times. Well, he was my hero. So I got into this club. I was underage, but I had a fake ID. 
I, and I got into this club and my buddy was playing, backing up George. John Phillips was backing up George Harmonica Smith and his band. So when John would play three songs, he would get down and George would get up and, and finish out the set. And there were like two sets. Mm -hmm. So he does the first set. And I'm just like in awe, of course. And John sees me out in the audience. Now, I, it's very rarely I did not have a band already at that time. But right. I was missing a guy or something, and I said, oh, I can't play this weekend. So I went to see George. And uh, he, John Phillips sees me in the audience. He comes up to me. He says, hey, man, I want you to get up there instead of me on this next set. And I went, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> you know I was chickening out. And he looks at me. He says, no, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> So I got up there and I'm, I'm playing his three songs. I get about two and a half songs into it. And uh, George jumps on the stage with me and, and uh, I'm, I'm freaking out, you know? Right. And he was, so he was kind of a vaudevillian kind of performer. You know, he would lay on his back and kick his legs in the air and all that stuff. And I would have to do everything he was doing. <laughs> and, uh, at the end of the set, we did uh, You Don't Love Me. It's a song that my, the first version I heard was by Junior Wells, but it's a, a Willie Cobb song. Hmm. So um, so we, we would do that, and the band would get down one at a time until it was just me and George, or George and me. Right. And so we get done with that. Crowd's going crazy. Just packed house. Club owner comes up and says, how about it for George Smith? And everybody goes nuts. And he goes, and I don't know who the hell this guy is, but, and he handed me a C note. Wow. And uh, that was a big deal. You know, that was like, that was like two or three weeks worth of work at that time. Right. So, so, uh, and then George uh, came up to me and said, listen, man, uh, I want you to finish out the week with me. And I went, wow, really? And he said, I'll never forget it. He goes, yeah, I'm for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the beginning of another great friendship. So uh, all these things, you know, I, I will admit at some point, in the very beginning especially, I was just a pest, okay? I would put myself in the right situations. Right. And I would either ask if I could play or if someone could hear me play or, you know, I, I was probably a little obnoxious. I remember uh, I went up to Charlie Musselwhite <laughs> and he's a dear friend of mine, but at that time I didn't know him. And he said, uh, so he's sitting on the edge of the stage on a break. And I came up to him and I said, Hey man, let's go out back and play. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? Motherfucker. <laughs> I'm on a break. I said, oh, 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 okay. So I went to George Smith the next time I saw him, and I said, you know, he wouldn't let me play. So George Smith says, okay, here, take this harmonica. And it was a, a an enameled harmonica with stars and stripes on it. And uh, it was a beautiful, it was a honer. He said, you give this to Muscle White, he'll let you play. I go, cool. 
So next time I see him, next time I see Charlie, he's sitting at a table with this guy named Barbecue Bob. Is Stu somebody, Stu Hoffman, I think. And uh, they were sitting there. Barbecue Bob was a real sleazy. He was like kind of Ratso Rizzo, you know. <laughs> he, he would have been a great in that movie, I'm sure. Hmm. But uh, I walk up to Charlie and I go, George told me to give you this. <laughs> Charlie looks at the harmonica and, and he looks at me and he, he said, where did you say you get this? I got it from George Smith. He puts it in his pocket and said, thanks. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, those are the kind of things that you would get into constantly in the old days. You know, it, it was a totally different world, a totally different uh, set of many, many kinds of standards. It was great to be around all those old guys, you know. Was it, was it uh, difficult when you, when you said you, you described yourself as a shy kid? Like, how difficult is it for a shy kid to force yourself upon them or to kind of get noticed? All the shyness, I, I, I could overlook the shyness in certain situations. And uh, I wanted to play so badly that it didn't matter how painful it was. Hmm. I would walk. I would walk up to anybody. Lots of times somebody would say, hey, this kid can play. You should get him up, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, John Phillips got me on, like I said, he got me on many stages. But, uh, you know, it, uh, the shyness actually hit me later when I was, you know, had more kind of contemporary career going on. And I couldn't deal with hostile audiences. I didn't like it. And uh, with, with the blues stuff, I never saw one. But with the, with the contemporary stuff... I saw many, and I opened up for a lot of people, and their crowds were not nice a lot of the time. So it really kind of put me off of pop music in general. The people were always nice. The people we were opening for, they were great. But right. the audiences were scum. And uh, had many, I had things thrown at me. I got booed. I got, you know, a few times. Those are the times I can remember, of course. Uh, you always remember the bad stuff. Yeah. But uh, what are you going to do? You get up there and play. They're not going to drive you off the stage. There was no way they were going to do that. So when you know you're talking about your harmonica a lot, but I know that you're also you're also a great singer. Where does the singing come from? Uh, probably my dad. And did my you, dad was a great, he was a good singer. And did you have this? I mean, how did you feel about your singing? And at, when you're going up on and and asking to play with people, how much of that was you also singing? Not that much when it came to the old guys, but uh, I mean, you know, singing is how I make my living. Not playing harmonica. And uh, was it the way was a, that back then? I was a good singer right off the bat. I was a pretty good singer. I was fronting my own band. I, you know, I had, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, I could sing. Right. I mean, I can't, I couldn't sing like I sing now, of course, but, uh, you know, it, it's a work in progress. Every, everybody, uh, everybody develops. You're not supposed to get worse as you get older. You're supposed <laughs> to get better. Okay. That's can you do everything you, you, you used to do and better now? 
Of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. I believe I made huge progress just in the last few years, really, you know, because just because, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, there was a point in 1988 where I stopped drinking. Everything changed for me then. And, uh, I was all of a sudden able to do things that I was never able to do before. Uh, so really we're talking vocally or harmonica? Both, both, okay. both. And song, everything. And I, I, uh, you know, it was one of those things where that was kind of the beginning of my life, really. And luckily, a lot of the old guys were still around at that time, too. And I was able to... Now, I'm not saying I didn't have fun when I was drinking. <laughs> No. And I'm not and I'm not saying that I didn't have fun with those old guys when I was drinking. Right. Let me tell you, I had a ball with those guys. But my my game it it went up a thousand percent. And uh had you moved to Austin by this time? Yes. What what made you go to Austin? That's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> I was out here in California playing. I was playing with Lowell Folson. Lowell Folson had this kid from Texas playing with him named Mark Pollock. I don't know if you know who Mark Pollock is. No, I don't. Well, Mark Pollock was a guitarist. He played with James Cotton. He played with some Dallas. He played with a lot of different people. He's passed away too, unfortunately. And so here's Lowell and Mark, and we were partying and having a great time and Mark was a great guy and he started telling me about Austin and I went okay that's fine great I, I live in California so but as we kept in touch and he kept telling me oh you got to come to Austin man it's incredible down here blah 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 okay <laughs> and then uh, I moved to Minnesota for about a year and a half and I met a lot of people there, and I rekindled friendships with a lot, a lot of other people, like Albert Collins, like Eddie Taylor, like a lot of people. And uh, we went up and did a uh, – I had a band up there. We went up and did this uh, kind of a demo tape with a guy named Dave Ray, who was one of the local heroes around there. You know, a Glover, Ray, and Kerner. You ever heard of that team? No. Yeah, you know, they they were they were kind of popular, and uh, so we did that. Willie Dixon comes to town with his all stars: Carrie Bell, Lafayette Leak on piano, Buster Benton on guitar, and uh, the guy who played with Bo Diddley on drums. Can't remember his name now. And uh, Dixon on bass. So they bring uh, they've got this tape. And they bring Dixon into the club in the afternoon and they want to play the tape for him. So he's listening to the tape and it's like blowing his mind. Now, I'm not saying it was that good, really. <laughs> but it was blowing his mind. And Dixon offered to be my manager. And so he became my manager for a few seconds. Uh, he, he, couldn't really, he didn't really have time. And... But I, that's my claim to fame. Dixon was my first manager. 
Well, that's a big deal, though. It is a big deal. And then I went to, then he put me off to Jimmy Reed's manager, a guy named Bill Dyson, who allegedly was a crook. I never met him, but he was my manager. <laughs> now, but he did get me a record deal with these guys. So you never met him? No, I never met Bill Dyson. <laughs> I talked to him on the phone a couple of times, never met him. He died. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he died after he got me a record deal. And he said, uh, so he got me a record deal with these guys, uh, these African-American brothers up in, uh, up in Seattle. And uh, so these guys come down to Minnesota and they uh, recorded a single on me. First of all, they stayed at the penthouse. They were the, had the third largest African-American owned business in the country at that time. Oh. And their names were Phil and Leonard. Can you believe that? Like the Chess Brothers. Yeah, yeah. So that's crazy, huh? <laughs> they take me in. We recorded a single. We did this big show in Seattle. And in the meantime, after that show, big show with Howlin' Wolf, Albert Collins, Margie Evans, John Lee Hooker, all these great people, I told the band, because I had been talking to Jimmy Vaughn on the phone, right? Now, Vaughn came, had, had already come up to Minneapolis and sat in with the band for three nights. I might be getting my timeline screwed up here, but this was before I met Vaughn. Okay. I went, I went down. I told the band I was going to see my girlfriend in San Francisco, and I went down to Austin to check it out. This, this might have been the time after the first time I went down there. The first time I went down there was my first plane flight, leaving on Braniff Airlines out of Minneapolis, Okay. <laughs> That was my first plane flight. I went down there. Of course, it was freezing. It's January. I go down there. It's beautiful. <laughs> and and uh, this gal named Shirley Dimmick, who had heard my single that Phil and Leonard Aaron had made, she loved it. And she said, I want you to be my, I'm starting a publishing company, record company, booking agency. I want you to be my personal advisor, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm all at 22, 23 years old. I said, okay, well, look, you got to fly me down there. So I flew down to Texas. I went all over the place uh, and was playing on people's breaks with Stevie Ray Vaughan and uh, Doyle Bramhall Sr. We went out to this barbecue joint called Alexander's in, uh, I think it's Oak Hill. And, and, and Jimmy was playing out there with a band called Storm. So I don't remember thinking too much about it. You know, I, uh, there were a couple things that caught my ear, but not that much. So I, I knew things weren't going to work out for me with Shirley. So I went back to Minnesota. Well, then I get a call from Vaughn. Hey, man, I want to come up there. I go, okay, well, come on. I got three gigs. That's one night at one, three gigs at this one club, you know, three nights in a row. And uh, so he came up, he played, and we got drunk, drunk, drunk. And he was talking about how great Austin was, too. Anyway, he left. I'm still up there, kind of running out of people to play with, not liking the weather. <laughs> and uh, I go out to do this show with the Wolf in Seattle. That's when I told the band, I'm going to San Francisco. And I went down to Austin to check it for one last time. I decided I wanted to move down there right then. Wow. So I went back up, gave the band couple months notice 
see you later. Drove down with four other guys with my measly ass little record collection and the few clothes that I had on my my red 59 basement that I still have. <laughs> and that was 19, I don't that was 74. I stayed on uh, Jimmy and Connie's sofa for about eight months, no work. And finally I had to hit the streets, you know. I don't even know how it happened, but we ended up getting some work. And then all of a sudden things started popping a little bit. It wasn't easy. Believe me, it was very, very difficult. There were many times I would say, well, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, and uh, but everything was so cheap. I had a whole house for $85 a month down there, (laughs) but I still couldn't pay the electric bill. (laughs) So I got in there with a boom box and some candles, and I lived without electricity for about a couple months, but I still had water. That was okay. So, um, you know, and then that's how I got to Austin. Did, did, did things click with Jimmy from the start? Like, did you think, oh, this is the guy I want to work with? I, I didn't feel like I had a huge choice. Right. I mean, I... I Felt like I wanted to get out of Minnesota. I felt like uh, I had a pretty good band down there, although things changed all the time, you know. And uh, so I was there. That was it. So, and then, you know, back then Jimmy was a pretty good guitarist. <laughs> so, I mean, we had our own little shtick that we did, you know, it was kind of a combination. It ended up that. That were the it was ended up being you know, kind of like the first three or four Chrysalis records, uh, you know, kind of a combination of Chicago, Louisiana. Everybody had a different influence. Ferguson, Keith Ferguson had different influences than Jimmy did, and Jimmy had different influences than I did. And uh, the drummer was Mike Buck, and he was kind of a, a musicologist himself. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it ended up being a, a kind of a, a mixed bag that that gelled into one semi-cohesive thing. So why was it that you, you weren't working for eight months? Like, like I, weren't there a lot of gigs available in Austin? None. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but we would, uh, and then, you know, we got a gig at Anton's. Yeah. And uh, then we got to be the house band at Anton's. Which it was a lot of fun, but there was no money, zero. I mean, actually, Antone was very, very nice to me from the very beginning. He was like he became like my family, of course. But you know, I'd say, hey man, uh, you know, we'd be playing with Eddie Taylor at the club on Sixth Street, and there'd be nobody in there. You'd make like twenty bucks, get out of here. But I'd, I'd walk up to him and I'd go, hey, man, look, I can't pay my rent. He goes, how much is it? So he'd hand me my rent money and I'd be good for another month. And that happened a lot. Hmm. So he was a uh, uh, Clifford Antone was a true patron of the arts. And he loved the music and he loved it for the right reasons. He was even more of a a blues hard ass than I was, you know? <laughs> and so that's why we got along. And I think that 
He also saw a lot of the uh, the old guys come in doting on me. And he went, oh, I guess this guy can play. And after a while, you know, he figured it out. Didn't take too long. But uh, listen, I was a fucking Yankee. You know? Right. He didn't like no damn Yankees down there. The, the, the rest of the guys that I came down with, they were already gone a long, you know, a, a few months after they they got down there. They said, uh-uh, we can't handle this. So I was I was the transplant that the body did not reject. <laughs> what what made you continue when you went through such hard times? Like, did, I presume you questioned what you were doing and thinking, oh, am I ever going to be able to make a living doing this? But what kept you going? I just loved it. I loved it. And I didn't want to do anything else. And uh, this is what I tell my boy now, my son. Mm-hmm. I tell him, look. And I tell everybody, I tell you all young kids, do what you love. Do what you love to make a living. And if it's something that you don't love, learn to love it. Put yourself at the very top of the food chain. And... Uh, you'll get along in this world. Right. But, uh, you know, you have to do what you love. You have to. So many people aren't doing what they love. They're miserable. My job to cheer them up on a bandstand. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, you know, there are people who are miserable their whole lives. There are people who say, okay, I'm really good at this. I'm going to, I'm going to be great at it, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a good living, and I'm going to get into it. And that's what you have to do. So when when the Family Thunderbirds got together, and obviously you you got to play with a lot of the greats in at Antones, um, I presume that was a great learning experience. But yeah. I've talked to so many musicians who who talk about the significance of the Thunderbirds and what it meant to them. Did you know that? What did that band mean to you and 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 the influence that it's had on other people? I think it meant a lot more to everybody else than it did me. But and I'm not so sure how really how much it meant really. I mean, uh, I don't think we recouped yet on those four records we did on Chrysalis. Really? To come, I don't think so. But. Uh, I, I do know one thing. On Muddy Waters' word, we were on the road with packed houses. On Muddy Waters' word. Can you talk about that? How you met him and what he meant to you? Well, you know, we uh, were opening up for Muddy at Antone's. We had just gotten into town from somewhere. We're up there kind of sound checking and the guys walk in. They're not really paying much attention to us. And then uh, the gig starts that night. There was a dressing room above the stage with a, just a little curtain on it, and you could look right down onto the stage. <laughs> well, we kick off into this first harmonic instrumental that we started with every night. And I look up, and everybody's got their head out, including Muddy, just with their eyes wide open, going, who in the hell are these guys? <laughs> you know? And that was really the beginning of a beautiful friendship with all those guys. Pine Top, Muddy, Fuzz, Willie, mm-hmm. you know, Bob, Junior, especially with Pine Top and, and Muddy, of course. A lot of things happened that night that I can't really talk about, unfortunately. 
I said, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. Right. But, but uh, Buddy went crazy over me. And he, he put the word out. And he put the word out you know, on the East Coast. And we went, we went up there and we had, it, was, it still wasn't that easy. But we had some really good houses and we had some not so good houses. But it was all on Muddy's word. He would say things to the press about us, about me, that were unbelievable. I mean, that's Muddy Waters saying this stuff about you. You mm-hmm. know, I was—I uh, remember I was in the audience one night watching Muddy after we got done opening for him, and he went into everything's going to be all right by Little Walter. He brings the band down. And he said, "Ladies and gentlemen." That song's by the late, great little Walter. There's a young man in the house tonight that reminds me more of little Walter than anybody I've ever heard. Stand up, Kim. Oh. Wow. And I went, oh. <laughs> I, get a little, I get a little emotional when I think about it, you know. Yeah. But uh, that man was so good to me, just like they all have been. His word was golden when it came to harmonica players. And that... That kind of, he kind of made me. And I was, I'm very, very, very grateful to all these guys. How would you describe the Fabulous Thunderbirds? Like, I know it's a blues-based band, but was, would it be correct to say there's more rock to it than blues, or? Uh, no, not rock. Rock and roll, yes, not rock. Okay. Rock is something I don't subscribe to, but... But rock and roll, yes. Um, and, you know, it depends on what period you're talking about. Right. You know? I mean, if, it's, if you're not talking about these days, it's kind of nebulous what the band is. That's changing, though. It's changing into more of a blues band that plays rock and roll. And uh, that's what it was in the beginning. It was In the beginning, it was a straight blues band. And then we started doing things by uh, Rock and Sydney and uh, Guitar Jr., who is Lonnie Brooks? Right. You know that was the beginning of the more adding rock and roll to it. Then we went to England and recorded "Tough Enough" with uh, Dave Edmonds. Before that, Nick Lowe had uh, had produced a record on us. Wow. And it it had and it had become a little more contemporary. And then when we went to Dave Edmonds. It really became quite a bit more contemporary, but it was still to went to analog tape, and it was a beautiful sounding record, pretty much. Then things started changing. I had written almost all the songs, and uh, I wrote I wrote almost all the originals. I either wrote them, or uh, there was one I think I co-wrote with those guys, and we had a hit record. Right. The haves and have-nots uh, became a little more separated because we didn't get an advance on that record. That record was recorded in England at Dave Edmonds' studio, and we had a we had rented flats there. I can't remember the name we were, the name of the label we were signed with, but uh, they ended up going bankrupt. So here we are with Tough Enough trying to sell it, and we didn't sell it. For a long, long time. Wow. We finally went back to CBS, and there was a guy named there named Tony Martell. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, he is a, I'm not even sure he's still alive, but uh, he has this thing called the Martell Foundation with a charitable organization. 
very, very generous guy. We walk into his office. He said, boys, I think I can sell this. Okay. So here's what we do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a label inside this Columbia family called CBS Associated. You get access to everybody, all the promotion people, everything, on, everywhere we are, which was basically at that time New York and L.A. Right. That's when we got a taste of the real record business. And it was, uh, it was an eye-opener. But, like I said, the haves and have-nots were separated a little bit. I, I, was, I was a songwriter. We got no advance because they had, CBS had to buy the masters from this other company right. who had gone bankrupt. So I, we, got a, you know, we got a few thousand dollars each or something. It was nothing. So we, uh, we start going on the road and uh, opening up for a lot of people. Opened up for Clapton. That was actually before we had had a hit record, though. But after we had a hit record, when and, and it, was, it was becoming a hit record, we, uh, we had to do a lot of things. A lot of things that I wasn't crazy about. And uh, we had a record that went to number, the, I think the single went to number 10, the album went to number 13. And it, it went platinum fairly quickly. It's double platinum now, I think. But uh, even after we'd had a hit record, we were managed very, very poorly. And we did not, we really never traveled with our own production. We did it for about a month. And that was it, hmm. the whole time. And it was, it, was, it was a crazy thing. I mean, these days... It's a, like I say, it's a different world now. Right. You know, yeah, you can travel with your own production, but why? You know what I mean? Yeah. You can go out and just you're playing big festivals, you're you're playing big clubs, and there's no even there's no reason even to have your own sound man because if you have your own sound man, he's got to learn how to use their board. Right. So you go in and use the house engineer, and it's very search and destroy these days. In in '93, you decided to do your first solo album. What was the distinction like? Why, because you're the band leader, could you not have done that? Or did you have an did you have an idea what the Fabulous Thunderbird should always be, and then you want to do something else? Well, my management once again, he said, you know, harmonica doesn't really sell. We're going to try, we're going to do less of that now. And I got into, I started to get in an argument with him and I said, you know what? Okay. I'll do this, but I'm going somewhere else also because I have to be satisfied. And that's when I went with Anton's records. Right. And, uh, you know, that was really kind of, uh, actually, the beginning of the end was of that initial band for one thing you know we got rid of Ferguson pretty quickly bef not too long before we had gone to England to record Tough Enough and uh, we got Preston you know Preston was a great musician 
everybody wanted to be and thought they were hit mongers, you know? Hmm. I did not think that. I just wanted to play. I, I had already changed way too much to have a hit record. Although, thank God I had a hit record. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it was a wonderful experience working with, at the tail end of when you could have a hit record. Right. And uh, and actually make a little money on record sales and BMI and mechanicals, stuff like that. I got to say, I was pretty miserable. You know, I shouldn't have been. Hmm. We're having all this success, and we really were cre the creators of our own destiny. Uh, and, you know, when you're a band of equals, uh, it's easy to squander those opportunities. Because everybody has their, you know, you know what they say about opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I did my first record before 93, actually. Oh, okay. My first solo record. I think it was more like 91. But uh, it was great to get in the studio and do some real blues again. I'll tell you that right now. And, and that Tiger Man record is a great record. You know, and that was kind of the beginning of me really becoming me. And I was I was so happy to be in the studio with those guys. And, I, I you know, great players in there. Great players. And, and. I was thinking to myself, you know, boy, I guess I really am going to get to do everything I want to do. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and I, I was like, uh, you know, I mean, there was a guy named, I don't even want to mention his name either. He was an A&R guy over at Antone's. He was a total idiot too. And but But I got two good records out of them. And... Then basically, I can't remember what happened, why I left, probably because of that A&R guy, or they were about ready to go out of business or something. I can't remember. But uh, then I started, you know, thinking about having my own label, and I did have it for a little while, and I made some great, great, great recordings directly to mono, analog. Right. That's how, that's how I'm doing my recordings these days. The new album that's coming out in, the, in October. Yeah, and it, it's that's a beautiful record. I got to tell you, it's just a great, great, great thing. That's a that's another story. So I'm out there recording with these guys like Junior Watson, like like uh, Larry Taylor, Richard Ennis, Fred Kaplan. We just spit it out. Rusty Zinn was on those sessions. You know, I've got hundreds of tracks. I, I put out a box set actually. I think it's seventy tracks on that. Wow. But uh, beautiful sounding. We went to two or three different studios. We would actually, uh, the, last, the last session we did had no amplified instruments on it, which was very cool. That ended up falling through. I, I had a partner that was not legit, and uh, I'm not even going to mention his name either. But uh, he was a musician, <laughs> total fool. But anyway... It, it was kind of a lost cause anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was a labor of love. And, you know, it, it really it gave me a whole new respect for people who have labels. Then uh, I got a call from Mark Carpentieri. This is quite a few years later. And uh, 
he wants me to get in the studio with Big Jack Johnson. So I go to Memphis, and we're eating barbecue. We're having a ball in there. I mean, that's a great record. Mm -hmm. You know, Carpenter is talking to me about, uh, I think he was making, he was hitting me up to be on his label, if I'm not mistaken. We were eating barbecue. I'll never forget it. We're eating barbecue. And I said, you know, I had not been re I had not been even nominated for a, a WC Handy Award, which is what they were called at that time, right. for 13 years. But anyway, that record did win a Handy, and uh, that was that was great for Big Jack. I was very very happy for him. I was very offended. 13 years? Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? You know, and I, I was. Uh, uh, I'm offended in a lot of ways still by people like Larry Taylor and Richard Ennis not ever getting one, you know. Right. Barrel House Chuck not getting one. I, it blows my mind. It blows my fucking mind mm -hmm. that these guys did not win awards while they were alive, let alone after they died. Right. And uh, so that offends me extremely. They got a new person over there at the Blues Society now, the Blues Foundation. Yep. I think she's African-American, isn't she? Yes, she is. That's uh, that's a step in the right direction. Can I ask you, so you're now you're back with Mark on IMC Records, and the album's coming out in the beginning of October. What do you hope to achieve at this point? Because you've done tons of recordings. You've, you've done a lot of different things. What, what would be a goal for this new album? To win a Grammy. Oh, okay. To win a Grammy. Uh, I've been nominated six times. I've never won. So, and two of Mark's prior releases when I was on his label uh, were nominated. Right. So, I've, uh, they say a nomination is as good as a win. I disagree. I think a win would be incredible. And I guarantee you there will not be a record that can touch it. Of course, there were, the other records couldn't touch my records last time either. So, I don't know. But, um, as far as traditional blues, this record can't be touched. And I and I will say this: uh, I, did, I never mentioned Big John Atkinson, but I, uh, I I went with Severn Records, right? Right. And I love I love David, but I, I, he tried to make a soul singer out of me. That was a mistake. And I think now it's time to get back to what I'm really good at. With the Thunderbirds and with the solo, the solo thing was always that way. Right. So, how the Blues and Boogie record happened was Nathan James. You know who that is? Yes. Nathan James has a home studio. It's a little more than a home studio, actually. It's it's kind of he's got a control room. He's got some things going on over there. He said, oh, you should come down and record with, at my place, man. I won't charge you much money. I go, okay. Okay, let's do it. So I went down there. I had Marty Dodson. I had Big John Atkinson. I had, uh, and I had Nathan, and that was it. And uh, I said, well, if I don't like this, I'll just, I won't come back. <laughs> well, I ended, up cutting, I ended up cutting 25 tracks that day. Wow. And uh, I went back in there many, many times after that with Big John with Billy Flynn, with Larry Taylor, with Richard Ennis, with Barrel House Chuck, 
Nathan playing guitar also. And I was recording 25, 30 tracks every day. <laughs> I've got, you know, I'm sitting on a lot of tracks with him too. <laughs> and so I had met Big John. And Big John was had had his own place down in uh, that he was just starting down in San Diego. So after I was done with all that, I went down to uh, San Diego to record with Big John. Big John had a whole different, you know, he's a throwback. He's a he's a young kid, but he's a throwback. He's got he's a freak, <laughs> and uh, he had all this old gear. So did Nathan, though. But John's was even older, you know. John's was like three track mono machines, and uh, one thing I noticed about him was he had a really good ear too. And we started doing some things down there. Well, some of all of the stuff that's on this new CD is from his studio and the different variations of his studio. He moved from San Diego up to Hayward, and we had a whole different thing going on up there. And it's 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 all documented on this CD. Now that kid's a hell of a musician, let me tell you. And he's, uh, there's very few people who can tra play traditional music as well as him, ever. Wow. And so, but you know, I mean, we also had Billy Flynn, who's like the guy, mm -hmm. the guy of, of everybody. He, he's the best blues guitarist on the planet. It's funny that a lot of people don't know that, <laughs> but, but they don't. Where do you see yourself in the blues today? I mean, you know, you grew up respecting all these greats like Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon. Do you see yourself in, in that place? You know, it's really not for me to say, you know. Yeah. Yeah, people say that. And the old guys were saying it back then. Right. But, uh, you know, but I don't know if you, you know, Raging Bull. Yeah, that, that the movie. Yeah, look yeah. at you. Look at me. Look at you. Look at me. That's how I feel about it. When those guys would talk to me, talk about me that way, I'd go like, "Well, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life." But it's really not true. And maybe I'm just getting in on the ground floor of that. You know, all I'm trying to do is show people what real is. Okay. Yeah. The music. When you talk about modern blues, you know, you're talking about Albert King. You're talking about Albert Collins. You're talking about Little Milton. You're talking about James Cotton, even. You're talking about a few others. And that's as new as it should have gotten until, until they can figure something else out. But when Albert King went to Stax and when Albert Collins was doing those funky beats and also uh, Little Milton was doing the stuff on chess like that, uh, that was a big deal mm -hmm. and it was legitimate and it was great music. And now it's just, you know, everything's just out there flapping in the wind. And uh, that's very distressing to me. I'm not going to mention any names. Why? What good does that do? Right. All I can tell you is as far as what's real, there ain't very much of it out there. And uh, this new CD is one of them. This new CD is, you know, it's really, really great, great performances and all done live. 
No overdubs. We did overdub the horns. That's not true. We overdubbed overdubbed the horns because you can't go in there waiting for a bunch of horn players in a section. If they screw up one time, you're done. So, and it takes a lot more time. So we did overdub the horns. Yes, but there's only horn. There's one horn on one thing, and then a section on uh, slow down. Yeah, that's it. Everything else was done live. The vocals were done live. There was no such thing as a dummy vocal. You go in and you cut the thing like they used to. And uh, I feel I feel incredibly good about it. I've been working on this stuff. You know, like I say, with Big John also, I'm sitting on hundreds and hundreds of tracks. So will we see or hear those tracks at some point? I hope so. I mean, I've got enough for definitely another one or two records of, of the best of the best, you know, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's what you keep. You keep the best of the best. That's why you cut so many tracks. And I, I, I hope, I hopefully you will. You know, I got Nathan, all that stuff at Nathan's place too that needs to come out at some point. And anything from the Fabulous Thunderbirds? We've got something coming. We've got a, we haven't been in the studio yet because all this strangeness that's going on out there. But we're going to have something uh, with a lot of high profile guest artists. Nice. We have already got a few volunteers. So looking forward to that. We're writing right now. You know, I'm out here. I'm out here in California, kind of stranded. Good place to be stranded. I will say that. <laughs> yes. But, but uh, you know, I started writing and then I wrote two or three. And then I had Steve Gomes comes out, my bass player, who's a fantastic songwriter. Mm-hmm. Really got a great way with words. Knows how to tell a story. And uh, we wrote a we wrote a few, and so I think that uh, we're going to have really good material for this record. It might be a little more contemporary, you know. But my object now is not to go so so so. I mean, contemporary was what rock and roll. Well, so is Chuck Berry, so is you know Lonnie Brooks, so is you know Bo Diddley, all these guys. So it's, I wouldn't really call anything I could possibly do contemporary. Contemporary means you just sell it to a few more people. Right. <laughs> and uh, so you have to get this whole, you know, the whole production thing. Those days are over. Okay. Yeah. The record business is over. It's over. You know, you're doing it to so you can stand up. And be counted. That's why you do it. That's why we always did it. They got a little hazy there for a little while. Now it's that's the way it is. And I think that uh, we've got a good uh, we've got a good start on this T-Bird thing. I don't even know when we're going to be able to record it. I don't even know when we're going to be able to rehearse it. You know, everything is just so screwed up out there right now that uh, may not even be till summertime to where we can even record something or even get a gig. Mm-hmm. You know, so. That's very disturbing, but uh, I'm optimistic that things will pop before then. They're going to come up with a vaccine, and uh, you're in a pretty good place. You're in Canada, and uh, you've done a much better job with this stuff than we have. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to get political because I I just don't want to do that. I'm not going to get political. You can probably hear by the tone of my voice where I lean. <laughs> but uh, 
I'm, I'm saying that I never thought in my life thought that I would see anything like this in this country. And it's really basically the American people. Mm -hmm. The selfishness. They've already said, if everybody wore a mask, this would have been over a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or at least it would be close and we would have lost 100,000 people fewer than what we lost, at least. So, yeah, it's uh, very, very, very disturbing. But all you can do is just, you know, maybe I'll move to Canada. Well, you're always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you weren't too far away at one point, right? You lived in Detroit. I lived in Detroit and I lived in Minnesota. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kim, thank you so much for doing this. Every time, you know, I, I, I think I've known you since, like, early 2000s. And every time I've asked you, you've been very gracious and, and accommodating to me, and which I really appreciate, and especially when you did a little piece for my Mel Brown DVD. Um, and you said some kind words about Mel Brown. So, Oh, I love Mel Brown. I really appreciate that. So, and, and all that you've done. So thank you so much. And, and let me finish with my final question to you is, when you look back on your journey, how do you summarize this amazing adventure you've been on? It's been an unbelievable run. And the beautiful thing about it is it's far from over. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very grateful for that. You know, I had open heart surgery. Uh, it's coming up on three years now ago. Wow. And the doctor said, I could have died any second. <laughs> he goes, you were playing Russian roulette with five loaded cylinders. <laughs> How did I that said, change to you, that experience? Uh, it just made me more grateful. You know, it made me more grateful for my wife, for my kids, you know, just more, more for that than the music. But... Uh, just made me grateful to be here and be in this beautiful place that I live and look out, walk out the door and go, thank you, God, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I love this place. I love it. I'm never leaving again. I've been here for quite a while now, you know, approaching right. 30 years. Wow. But, uh, you know, uh, me and my wife got a nice setup around here and we're, we're very, very, very happy. Um, she is a gem. She's an absolute gem. I'm so lucky I found her. We've, we've only been married. We got married in 2016. Wow. We're still newlyweds. <laughs> well, Kim, thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure, man. Let's do it again sometime. For sure. Okay, brother.